0: Well, there is nothing quite like good news, is there? Isn't it nice to get good news, especially in a world where we're always bombarded with bad news, it's nice to get good news. For example, you might be a student and you realize you have a lot of homework and you didn't get it all done, and then you hear, tomorrow's a snow day. That's good news, isn't it? Or your boss tells you that you got the promotion. Or those medical tests that you were concerned about are negative. Sometimes the news, the good news, comes on an even greater scale. Bible teacher R.C. Sproul tells of an occasion as a six-year-old boy when he was living in Chicago in 1945. He was in the middle of a game of stickball when all of a sudden there was a huge eruption of jubilation as people were streaming out of the buildings. Women were banging on pots and pans with wooden spoons, and everybody was celebrating. Now Sproul wasn't too happy that his stickball game got interrupted until his mother came over to him, tears streaming down her face, and she told him, the war is over. The war is over. That was etched in his mind. There would be no more death. No more casualties. No more split families. His father was going to be coming home. Now there was peace. What good news, right? What good news. Likewise, friends, Christianity is about good news. The word gospel means literally good news. And understanding and embracing the gospel is how a person becomes a Christian. How they make peace with God and receive eternal life. The gospel is greater than any news we could possibly hear, even news about the end of a global war, because it deals with the most important issues, our relationship with God and eternal life. Everything else pales in comparison to the good news of the gospel. Now today we're going to finish our two-part message on what is the gospel. Now... Forgive me, I do want to review a little bit from last week because it will help to connect the dots where we pick up today. So I do want to review just a little bit from last week. Last week I defined the Gospel as God's plan of salvation revealed through Scripture and accomplished by Jesus. So Scripture reveals God's plan of salvation that was promised in the Old Testament and now fulfilled by Jesus. And so when you unpack that definition a little bit, you'll find four main elements in the Gospel. There is God, humanity, Christ, and our response. Okay, those are those four key elements. God, humanity, Christ, and our response. And with each of these elements, I try to connect a key phrase with it. All right? And so last week we covered two of those Elements, God and humanity. And when we looked at God, I put out that key phrase, holy creator, holy creator. There are many attributes that Scripture talks about with God. He's almighty, He is loving, He is just, and so on. But more than any other attribute, we see that He is described as holy. And holy means set apart. It means God is set apart from God. The rest of creation. He is unique. He is different. There is no one like Him. 1 Samuel 2, 2 speaks that there is no one like God. He's also set apart morally. God is absolute moral perfection. He is absolute moral perfection. He is set apart from the sin that is in this world. God and sin are like oil and water. They just don't mix, Right? So God is holy. He's also creator. By His own choice, God decided to make a universe. He did not need to make this universe. He wasn't lacking in Himself. He did not need to know us. Or He wasn't compelled to do so. He just simply wanted to make a universe to do it for His own good and for our good. So He chose to create this universe. And He made a magnificent creation, didn't He? Full of of things that display His power and wisdom and so on. So, the first building block here, the first element, is God is our holy creator. The second element of the Gospel is humanity. And the key phrase here was fallen image bearers. Fallen image bearers. Of all the creatures in the world, only people are said to be made in God's image. Meaning we're spiritual, we're relational, rational, and moral beings like God. He has made us in His image. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? And we're also, the Bible says, given dominion over this world. This magnificent creation that God has made. We are made to be in authority over it. But above all else, God has made us to be in relationship with Him. We have the greatest purpose of all. To know and to glorify God. We're not random, purposeless beings. The Creator of the universe wants to know us. This was the intention of God's plan from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. But as glorious as a creation as we are, God also makes it clear that we are still not God. He is God, and He is sovereign over us. And despite repeated warnings to that first pair, to obey Him. We know what happened and how they sinned. And this was the fall of humanity. Sin entered into human existence. Now that that they have done that, we are sinners by nature. No one has to teach us how to sin, do we? It's innate to us. We're bent toward pride or lust or jealousy or greed or lying. We have this sinful nature. And we are sinners by choice. We have a fallen nature, but we still possess A choice when we do these things. Our our will is is corrupted, but it's not obliterated. We can't just simply blame and say, Oh, that's how I am. We have a choice in the things that we do, don't we? We also saw last week how when we talk about sin, it's not just the things that maybe we do with our hands, the outward actions or the tongue, what we might say, but even our thoughts, the Bible talks about, are sinful. And so, if we stop for a moment and if we're honest with ourselves and put a window over our spirit, we would have to be honest in saying, just look at this past week, the things we've said and done and thought about. All of us have sinned. And that's why the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, where does that leave us? Well, because God is perfectly just, He must punish our sin. God could not ignore sin and still be God, could He? He wouldn't be perfectly just if a human judge doesn't, uh, if He just, refuses to punish a guilty person, we would question his standard of justice. How much more with God? And so because God is perfectly just, he's going to punish that sin. You say, well, what is the punishment? Well, instead of a relationship with God that we were made to enjoy, the Bible speaks about our spiritual separation from him, both now and for the rest of eternity in hell. And I know our, as we talked about last week too, our, our modern tendencies to kind of trivialize final judgment or to dismiss it out of hand, but Jesus gives some of the most dire warnings about final judgment. We may not like it, but it doesn't change the fact that he made us and he has the right to hold us accountable. So friends, before we embrace the good news, we kind of needed to hear the bad news, right? And it's not. It's, it's bad news. It sets the stage. It prepares our hearts. It's that black velvet that, puts, that is set in back of that beautiful gem that shows off its magnificence and radiance, but it has to be placed there first. You have to see a need. You have to see a need for forgiveness and grace, or else when you hear the Gospel, it will fall on deaf ears, right? You'll be worried about something else. You'll be worried about your lunch plans or something else, but if, if you've not ever been in a place where you realize your need, this doesn't connect with you at all. But I pray that it would connect with you today and that you would see that this good news is for you. Only when we see our true condition will we, will we be ready to hear the gospel. And that's where we pick up today. We pick up today looking at the last two elements of the gospel. Let's start with Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus truly is the centerpiece of the gospel. And the key phrase I want to throw out there for you is God and Savior. God and Savior. The New Testament makes the astounding declaration that Jesus is fully God. He's not just a great teacher, a prophet, or miracle worker. He's not even just, say, kind of a, a supernatural being that's powerful like an angel. No, He is fully God. All of those attributes that we talked about last week about God, they apply fully to Jesus. He is entirely fully God, and for 2,000 years, the church has collectively affirmed the deity of Jesus. Now, obviously, that's quite a claim, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. But if that is the case, it changes everything, doesn't it? That's kind of the issue of issues. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, why would we believe this? Well, it could say a whole lot, but just to boil it down to a couple of things here, let me mention three proofs that I would look at if we're analyzing this. First is Jesus' miracles. Jesus performed miracles like no one else, both in terms of power and number. And you're probably familiar with some of the miracles that Jesus did, like walking on water and healing the sick and the blind and even raising people from the dead. And sometimes I think that we've become so familiar with these Miracles that they've lost their power and impact on us. I mean, we talk about Jesus walking on water just like it's, you know, just like, oh, it's a little cloudy outside today. That's not the way it should be. These miracles speak volumes. They reveal Jesus' control over nature, over sickness, over life and death. Jesus himself pointed to those miracles, and and said to the crowds, believe in me because of these miracles. No one else does what Jesus does. I would also look at his holiness. When you read the Bible, it's really fascinating how the flaws of the characters are laid out there for all to see. I mean, you look at the main characters, and you see Jacob was a liar. Sarah was skeptical. Joseph was proud. Moses and Paul were murderers. David was an adulterer and a murderer. The apostles were small in faith, slow to understand. And when Jesus got arrested, they fled like a bunch of cowards, despite saying, oh, we'll die for you, a few hours before. All these characters, their flaws are laid out in the Bible. Aren't you glad you're not in the Bible? I am. But when it comes to Jesus, nothing is ever said about him. There's this kind of deafening silence. But it's not like the apostles didn't know him. I mean, they spent three years with him, traveling and living together. Think about the people who know you well who live with you or been friends with you a long time. Now, they might be able to say, well, yeah, he's a pretty good person, but sinless? Please. Nobody's getting that. But listen to what the apostles say about Jesus. First Peter 2.22, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. First John 3.5 says, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So unlike every other person, Jesus never sinned. And then third, Jesus' claims. Jesus makes claims that only God could make. Only God can make these claims. Here are some of His claims. He hears and answers prayer. He will judge all of mankind. He has the power to give eternal life. He forgives sin. And He existed before the universe was ever created. He says these things about Himself. No one else makes those kind of claims unless they're liar a, they're a lunatic or their are Lord. That's what Jesus says about himself. Now we can go into a lot of detail about this passage, but I just want to look at one here this morning where Jesus doesn't just make an indirect claim, he makes a very direct claim about who he is and his deity. I want you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let me slip down here and grab a Bible myself. In John chapter 8, Jesus is debating with the religious leaders. And they are having quite a debate. And we'll pick up in verse 53. So they say to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets What do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not fifty years yet old, and have you seen Abraham? And so then, in other words, they're saying, how can you know Abraham? He lived a long time ago, and you're not even 50. How could you possibly know Abraham? So in verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You say, why is that important? Well, in Exodus 3, God tells Moses that his name is, I am who I am. Referring to the fact that God is unique. There is no one like Him. And He is self-existent. He doesn't need anyone else to exist like every other creature in the universe needs God to exist. God, He says, I am who I am. That's my name. So do you see how powerful Jesus' words are? He's saying, that's who I am. He's claiming to be God Himself. And the notice the reaction of the, of the Jews there in verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at Him, but Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. They thought that Jesus was blaspheming by claiming to be God. They got what He meant. Jesus, by His miracles, by His holiness, by His claims. Friends, there are compelling reasons to believe that Jesus is God. And the early church boldly declared this truth. And what makes this even more incredible is the Jewish makeup of the early church. What I mean by that is it is remarkable that a group of monotheistic Jews were willing to go out and declare that this carpenter was fully God and were willing to suffer the consequences and the harsh treatment which they expected. And they did receive it. Nonetheless, they didn't care. They were so convinced that Jesus was God, they went and preached it anyway. Listen to some of the early leaders in the church. John, Peter, and Paul. All of them Jewish. All affirmed Jesus deity. John 1 begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Romans nine five, the apostle Paul says of Christ that he is quote God over all. Second Peter says in Second Peter one one to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So as Peter mentioned there, Jesus is God, and he's also our Savior, and that was the other part of the catchphrase key phrase I was using. God and Savior. Since God is a holy creator with a perfect standard of justice, and we are all sinners, friends, we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior to escape God's justice and His wrath. And God knew this and has planned from the beginning of time to send a Savior as the Old Testament unfolds there is more and more revelation about who this Savior is going to be. So, for example, in Isaiah 9-6, hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, it talks about how God is going to be born into this world. I'm sure Isaiah was like, I don't really get this, but I'm writing it down anyway. And then a little bit later in Isaiah 53, he astonishingly predicts that the Savior is going to die for the sins of His people. Isaiah 53, 5-6. 6 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Friends, that's not written in the New Testament. That's written in the Old Testament about who this Savior is going to be. And Isaiah goes on to say, This was the plan of God, this was the will of God, that a Savior was going to come along and He was going to die for our sins. And so when we come to the New Testament, when Jesus is born, it's clear that He's the Savior. In Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Mary, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Jesus saves us by dying for our sins. He's our sin substitute. And that's why the Gospel writers, when they write about Jesus' life, they spend so much time and attention focusing on the cross. Because you see, friends, at the cross, that's where Jesus took our place. He became our substitute. The justice and the holiness of God were satisfied as Jesus took the Father's wrath. Remember last week I talked about the robber who takes money and is guilty before the judge, open and shut case. Because the judge has a standard of justice, he must punish the crime. And I said that we are the robber. Because God is just, He must punish us. He must punish our sin. But friends, this is where Jesus steps in. The punishment that would have rightly come to us, Jesus steps in. We receive a guilty verdict, but Jesus takes our place. He receives our punishment so that we can go free. The cross satisfies the justice of God Because Jesus takes our punishment, but yet the cross also demonstrates the the goodness and love of God as now a way is made for you and I to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this about Jesus. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is what people sometimes call the great exchange. Jesus receives our sin and we receive His righteousness. And a little bit later, three days, what happened? Jesus rose from the dead to show that what He He did on the cross and all His claims that He made were indeed true. And that the Father received this sacrifice and that now there was hope for humanity. Jesus did all of that for our salvation. 2,000 years ago. But let me ask you a question. Does it happen automatically? What Jesus did 2,000 years ago? It doesn't just automatically transfer us, do it? Does it? We need to respond to what He did 2,000 years ago. And that's the final piece of the Gospel, is our response. And Scripture is very clear that our response is twofold. Faith and repentance faith and repentance. Now, before discussing them individually, I should point out that Scripture links them together. They're really inseparable, but we will discuss them separately. But sometimes you see them in Scripture, how they're laid out side by side. Mark one fifteen, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Acts 20.21, 20, Paul said that his message was repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're really faith and repentance are... Distinguishable, but they're two sides of the same coin. Let me talk about repentance. What is repentance? When we hear that word, we need to know that it's more than sorrow, right? Sometimes people are sorry for doing things that they know they shouldn't do, especially if they get caught, right? But there's not any kind of real decisive change in their heart. And if they get another opportunity, they're going to do the same thing. Just try to be a little slicker next time, maybe. Repentance, though, runs much deeper. It's a decisive change in the heart. It's a decisive change in the heart to stop sinful ways and to obey God. It is a spiritual U-turn, right? What do you do if you're driving down the road and you realize you're going in the wrong direction? If you, if you, if you will admit and lay down your pride, you'll do a U-turn, Right? You'll go in the other direction. And Scripture speaks about how we are heading down a path of sin and judgment, and we need to repent. We need to repent. And repentance isn't just maybe being sorry about one thing, like, oh, I'm sorry about this, but I still keep doing these other things. No, repentance is a comprehensive change towards sin in general, whether it's something little and small or huge, Repentance is a decisive change in the heart. And people will look at your life and see a change, won't they? The outward change isn't necessarily repentance, but it's the fruit of it. It's the outward results. There'll be a change in your heart. People will look at your life and say something has changed. I remember a long time ago, I was a pretty kind of new Christian, and I was working with a guy who had... Uh, worked with me previously when I wasn't a Christian. And I always remember his words to me, where he he said, you know, you're an entirely new person. And it's fascinating because, you know, we had, had conversations about Christianity, and he wasn't a believer, and I don't even think he was really that interested, unfortunately. But he could not deny the fact that he looked at my life, and he was a matter-of-fact guy. He said, you're a different person. And I wasn't trying to show off or... or be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, but God had changed me and there was a decisive change in my life toward sin. So friends, if there is no change, there's no salvation. A person can't be a genuine Christian and have there be no change. As As sometimes people say, you can't add Jesus and not subtract sin. There has to be a change. Because repentance is all about turning from sin and obeying God. Now that's not saying that you're going to be perfect, is it? We know that we're going to continue to sin. But you'll have a different attitude toward it, right? You'll want to avoid it. You'll want to let go of this sin or that sin and start walking with the Lord. So our response must include repentance. But it also must include faith. Now, in our culture, the word faith means something different. Oftentimes, in the way the Bible uses it, the word word faith in our culture often kind of means a a blind, irrational belief. You know, a, a student might say, I don't understand this stuff that I've been studying. You know what, I didn't study at all for that exam, but I got faith that I got an A on that exam. Well, they can believe that all they want, but more than likely, that's not going to take place. It's a blind, irrational belief. Biblically, that's not what faith is about. Faith includes evidence and reason. It's not irrational. We just said, friends, there are good reasons for believing in Jesus. So, faith includes reason, but it also touches on something else. It touches on your will and your commitment. It's not just an intellectual thing, but it's something that you want to entrust yourself to. Faith is knowledge and trust. For example, I might go to the airport and look at an airplane and say, I have faith that that plane can take me to Europe. And I might have done my homework. I might study that plane and know all about the plane and the specs and the travel patterns and the pilots and everything about it. But do I really have faith in that plane if I won't get get on board? No, I don't. I don't have faith in that plane. I display faith when I get actually on the plane. Biblical faith means trusting Jesus as my God and Savior. We trust Him that He will take away our sins. He will cleanse us, all of them. We trust that He's going to give us peace. We trust that He will give us eternal life. We believe in Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So we must believe in Jesus. Let me just add an important point. Scripture is very clear, friends. The salvation does not depend on our good works. It's not by joining the church, not by baptism, not by confirmation, keeping the Ten Commandments. All of those things are good and helpful in their place. But it is not by good works. It is by repentance and faith. Ephesians 2, 9 and 8 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Did you hear that? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Scripture gives no other means of salvation. For some reason, this is hard for for people sometimes to sink into their heads that it's not about being a good person because we've all sinned as we talked about with us being fallen image bearers. We all have sinned. We need forgiveness and cleansing. But there are plenty of people who were trusting in their good works and somehow hoping that it's 51% good and 49% bad or whatever, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Those things, the good works, you know what they are? They're the fruit of your salvation. They're not the root of your salvation. That is repentance and faith. That is the root of your salvation. And I think this was pretty clearly communicated in these testimonies that we had earlier. I just want to go back and just read Jamin's again, just a portion of what he said. When he said, Then it hit me like a tidal wave slamming into a rowboat. Not only was I sinning against and hurting my loved ones, but even worse, I was sinning against and hurting God. I was hurting the only being that could truly save me. I was broken and for the first time I saw all the pieces scattered on the ground. I turned to God that day and begged for forgiveness. I accepted His mercy and I knew that He had already forgiven me. I accepted Jesus Christ as God and I accepted Him as my Savior. There it is right there. There it is right there. So friend, let me ask you, where do you stand with the good news? This is good news we've been hearing today. Amen? It's good news. You've heard it. How are you going to respond to it? How are you going to respond to it? Well, I want to throw up on the screen there a little prayer. and Read it out loud. It says, Lord, I confess that I have sinned against you, and I want to turn from my sin. I believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man who died on the cross and rose again. I am trusting in His atoning sacrifice to forgive all my sins and to grant me eternal life. Joyfully, I want to follow Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for your gracious offer of salvation that I now trust by faith. There's nothing magical in the prayer itself. Just by saying it doesn't make you a Christian. But those words reflect a sincere heartfelt prayer that really encapsulates what it means to become a Christian. And so, friend, today, if you have been listening to this message and you would like to respond to the good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to look at that prayer. And whisper that, maybe just real silently where you're sitting or in your heart, that today you would like to become a Christian. Today you would like to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus. Forget about everybody else sitting around you. This is between you and God. And receive the glorious good news and make it personal in your life today. Would you do so? That's never been a reality. What a great day we've had so far. But even greater than that would be for someone today to whisper that prayer in their heart. Today, I understand the gospel. Not only do I understand it here, but I want to embrace it. And I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that the most important thing in the universe, the greatest news we could possibly hear, you have made so clear and, Lord, compelling. It's wonderful news. And Lord, I pray today, if there's someone who's never understood truly what it means to become a Christian, that today, Lord, they would repent of their sins and they would turn to you They would embrace this glorious good news right now where they're sitting, placing their faith in you. And Lord, that they would leave today. And I remember even as a new Christian myself, I went home and told my family about what I had done because a change had happened. That they might tell someone in their life about their new faith in Christ. Lord, I also pray for those who have believed the good news at some point in the past, For Christians, Lord, that we would have a greater burden for those in our lives who have not received the gospel. Lord, that we would commit to praying for our friends and our family members with greater regularity and fervency. and Lord, also to remember that you have commanded us to share the gospel. It is not meant just for us to keep among ourselves, but Lord, you've commanded us to share it with this whole creation. Lord, help us to pass on this good news, this simple, but yet so profound good news. Help us to pass it on, even this week, to someone in our lives whom whom we would love to share with. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.